Hello and welcome to the Swine Disease Reporting System. This is the report number 34, which covers uh, the information regarding November 2020. My name is Edison Magalhães here at Iowa State University. Hello, my name is Giovanni Trevisan here at Iowa State. And my name is Daniel Linares here at Iowa State. And today we're going to cover three different pages, which is the PERS detection, uh, PCR detection of PERS, uh, mycoplasma, enteric coronavirus, and also disease diagnosis. We're going to cover the results from November uh, 2020. And today we have the pleasure to have here as a special guest, Dr. Clayton Johnson. Uh, Dr. Clayton Johnson is a veterinarian partner at Cartage uh, Veterinary Service, located in Cartage, Illinois, and he attended the University of Illinois College of Veterinary uh, Medicine, receiving his uh, DVM there. So Dr. Johnson is a global expert in swine health and production, having work experience in Latin America, Europe, and, and China. And he, recently, Dr. Johnson received the Lehman Swine in Practice uh, Award, uh, and the Swine Disease Reporting System is really happy to, to have you here today, Dr. Johnson. It's a, it's a pleasure for us. And uh, as Daniel and, and Giovanni mentioned before, if we have the podcast today here, that this recording is because of you, one of your ideas. So we are, really appreciate that. Oh, thank you very much, Edison. It's my honor to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to be involved. Thank you to Giovanni and to Daniel, really to your whole team there at Iowa State for all the work you do with the SDRS, but all the work you do in general to support the industry. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for the support. So let's get started. So just an overall, overall question. How have programs like the SDRS helped uh, veterinarians as you in the in field uh, to make decision, decisions regarding disease management or disease control? Give us some examples or, or regarding the, the decisions that you typically uh, do based on this kind of information. Yeah, Edison, I think when I think about SDRS um, and, and similar disease reporting mechanisms, number one, they serve as some sort of a frame of reference for me to understand is what I'm seeing in the field as a practicing veterinarian, is it unique? Is it um, in line with what my neighbors are seeing, with what other veterinarians are, veterinarians are seeing across health statuses and geographies? Or am, am I seeing something that is unique, but it's unique to me? It's not a disease syndrome that others mm -hmm. are seeing, or it's not a, a lack of a disease that others are seeing. So to me, it brings perspective. It brings the perspective of my current situation and how much of an, I'm an, of an outlier am I relative to my peers in the industry. I think the other thing that it helps me with is disease management. Um, you know, this report drills into the nitty gritty details of diagnostic results from specific pathogens. And that helps me to understand what are the changing diagnostic results throughout the industry. Now, it would be dangerous for me to just take all of that as fact and say, okay, the report says that, you know, 25% of the samples this week are positive for PERS. So that means 25% of the pigs are positive for PERS. That's not what we want to mine the report for, right? We're not necessarily looking for pure answers. We're looking for questions, okay? Mm -hmm. We're looking to say, you know, is there a change in the PERS prevalence out there based on these PCR results? And as such, should I change my disease management practices to go along with it? Are we seeing less PERS activity? And I should be pushing more towards elimination of PERS virus altogether. Or are we seeing more PERS activity and I should be more in PERS control board mode and more recommending that, you know, we, we build immunity and maintain immunity through vaccination. Mm 
I think the same thing with influenza virus as we think about our autogenous vaccine options and trying to customize autogenous vaccines to regional specific health challenges. Mm -hmm. The more information that I can get in terms of what specific pathogen are we finding on diagnostics and then within that for like say an influenza, you know, can I dive in a little bit deeper and look at maybe clades and clusters and subtypes and really hone in on what families of virus may be present in, in my world that helps me to be a better veterinarian simply because I'm recommending control programs that are more optimized to the environment that we're placing our pigs in. So again, I don't see the reports as being a direct answer for that, right? I don't open these reports saying how many pigs should I vaccinate for first today. Mm -hmm. I open these reports looking to say what's changing and what can that spur discussion, whether that's just communication with you guys that put together the reports to better understand the details of what got submitted, or maybe just calling up other veterinarians and saying, hey, here's my interpretation of the report. Does that match what you guys are seeing in the field? But I think if it's facilitating the discussions in the right direction about what pathogens are changing, where are they changing and why are they changing? That's the big value proposition of these reports. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. Thanks for, for your thoughts on that. The, the data is being generated, so using that data, like using it on, on this application that you mentioned, this is, this is the value, right? Yeah. Any additional comment, guys? So let's move for the first page, which is the, the PERS page in the, in the report which covers the, the PCR detection of, of PERS. And Giovanni has put together here some, some algorithms to, to identify some trends. And we observed that for this specific time of the year, we, we expected the predicted model from that Giovanni built uh, predicted an increase in, in PERS detection. So Giovanni, what are the, the highlights for the PERS page this month? Hi Edson, as you mentioned, PERS virus detection was in the upper boundaries of the forecast model at the end of October and the beginning of November. And that was mostly contributed by increased detection in the age category wind to marked animals. During November, a moderate increase in PERS virus detection was observed in adult south farms. And when you look at the regional level, this PERS detection was above state lights, state specific baselines at Minnesota, South Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska, Missouri, and Indiana. The advisory group did point out that this increase in detection in wind-marked animals put pressure on south farms, leading to breaks, lateral breaks in south farms and also in finishing sites. Mm. Associated factors with this increased birth virus detection include cold weather favoring the spread of the virus, by vaccination and loadout crews, transport, and the other indirect roads. So just a, uh, a quick question here for uh, for you, Clayton. I'm looking at the, the charts here as, as Giovanni uh, was was describing them, and it's pretty clear here in the plots as, as well as in the minds of, of practitioners like, like yourself that at this time of the year, purse detection really goes up relative to summer when it goes down. Right, and this uh, positivity rate is really associated with incidents and virus activity in the field, right? So, so uh, again, it goes up in the winter, goes down in the summer, up in winter, down summer. So we know that that wave is coming. So how can we beat that odds, Clayton? What, what else can we do uh, in, as a swine industry? We know it's coming. 
and it's coming again. What can we do uh, this year or next year to beat that odds and, and keep that pressure of infection down or, or in the lower boundaries? Yeah. You know, Daniel, everybody struggles with PERS. Um, if you're really lucky, you're in a situation where maybe once in the lifetime of your farm, you experience a PERS outbreak, you know, once every 20 years, or maybe once out of 30 years. But those are the extremely lucky people. Um, the most, the reality is for most commercial pig producers, sow producers in the U S you're probably looking at a one to 10, one out of every 10 year break rate or, or better. So it is a challenge for producers. Um, we also, I think have to recognize that it's an expensive problem for producers, not only to have, but an expensive one for producers to fix. You know, when we think about the winter transmission, um, fall, spring transmission, we think about aerosol transmission of the virus. Um, we think about weather patterns, environmental conditions that are conducive to the aerosol transmission. And those weather patterns are very unique. I mean, mm -hmm. I, that's something I always try and point out to producers is, hey, we come into this barn every day, you know, sometimes multiple times a day, 365 days a year. That risk of us coming in and the equipment and supplies mm -hmm. we bring in from a biosecurity perspective, that risk is always there. Aerosol is kind of an easy boogeyman to blame on a PERS outbreak. But the reality is the, the conditions that are appropriate for aerosol transmission don't happen terribly often. Now, out of mm -hmm. 24 hours a day and 68 minutes in an hour and 365 days, they happen. They happen this time of year. We can mitigate a good amount of that risk with air filtration. I think everybody's very comfortable with that technology. The challenge with it is the, the cost of filtering your farm, particularly for a retrofit farm that's you know, negative pressure, is very expensive. And for some producers, especially coming out of the last two or three years where profitability for producers has really been at poor levels, that's just too much of an investment for them to be able to make. Um, it may not be the long-term investment value proposition. If you break once every 10 years, maybe filtration isn't worth it. Save your money, you know, that you would have spent on filtration and just understand that you're going to have an outbreak every once in a while. Sometimes it could be for a short-term value proposition. Maybe the producer says, yeah, I want to filter, but, you know, I haven't made any money the last two or three years, so I just don't have the cash. I don't have the, the ability to invest in that. So the cost of those uh, improvements can be pretty substantial. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other piece of perspective that I would offer up is if we look at where our PERS outbreak rates have been in the last five years, they've moved in a positive direction. Um, you know, we've really come a, a good way from, you know, some of the early 2010s. I think 2011, 2012 was a bad year, uh, maybe uh, 12, 13, right before PED, if I remember right, was also a pretty challenging year. But we've come as an industry from where we were kind of north of 30% on the MSHIP report pretty consistently, now down to where we're more in that 25% range. Um, and I think we have to look at that as, as some sign of progress, that some of the things that we are doing are, are valuable. We're certainly picking the low-hanging fruit early on. So my guess is the you know, 5 to 8% improvement per year that we've made has been some of the easiest improvements there were to make out there. And as is always the case, as we try to take that number low, it's going to be more costly to do so and more difficult to do so. I think we have to continue to do it to, to push for it as veterinarians, but also work within the economic constraints that are always present in our industry and move at the pace that producers are capable of moving at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned a good point, and that's, uh, I think, fair to, to say, right, that we complain about PERS as, as we should because it still bleeds uh, or at least uh, adds in terms of cost of production, but it uh, one positive thing is that if we look at the economic uh, impact studies, 
right, have demonstrated. Uh, I'm thinking specifically about uh, the Darrell Holt Camp study. I think it was was that 2011 or 13, where he described that the cost for to the industry was uh, 664 million or something, right? Yeah. And more recently, last year, a couple of years ago, he he demonstrated a 20 percent decrease of that on that. So. Uh, it's not that we're losing the battle. It's still uh, some ground to cover, but uh, the industry is is picking up, right? Yep. I think it's fair to say that we're managing it better than we ever have before. Is it perfect? No. But, you know, in healthcare, we typically don't get to perfect. We're focused on progress and trying to get better every year. I think that'll get harder in future years, but we, we also should expect that technology is not going to be stagnant that we'll have improvements in technology, you know, the next new innovation like air filtration or the lowering of cost of the existing air filtration technologies. Those things are going to happen and we should take advantage of them every year. And you talked uh, uh, a lot as, you know, it makes a lot of sense to talk about biosecurity. How about uh, herd immunity or or immunologic solutions, thinking about uh, there's different ways to do that, right? So, well, what's the role on that or what potential for that on of those technologies on reducing or beating that odds and keeping incidents low next year? Yeah, I, um, I am really bullish on our ability to better manage immunity long term. Um, I think one of the benefits that is going to come out of 2020 is a significant investment in vaccination technologies and and therapeutics related to treating viral infections. And obviously, a lot of that will be driven by the human side. But as is always the case, Mm -hmm. we will be able to cherry pick some of those technologies that look interesting and look like they could help in the the swine industry. And we'll be able to leverage the, the huge investment that the world's making in COVID management right now. I think that'll help us in terms of new vaccine technologies. I think that'll help us in terms of immunomodulators that we can Mm -hmm. perhaps administer to the pig concurrently with vaccination and or concurrently in the face of an outbreak to try and optimize the immune response. Um, Some of those immunomodulators are going to upregulate certain things. Some of them are going to downregulate some of the bad inflammation that really causes the the pig to feel bad. Um, And I'm really excited about that. I think short-term, Daniel, you look at the new vaccines from a PERS perspective that have come to the market, and it tells you that people are interested in the space, they're investing in the space, whether it's new versions of modified live vaccines or new versions of killed vaccines. I know there are lots of folks working in the area trying to come up with solutions. They understand that we're far from a perfect state when it comes to PERS management, and they continue to apply R&D dollars towards PERS management. So I think there's some really neat things that are going to come down the pipeline. Long-term, probably piggybacking off our COVID learnings. Short-term, there are things that are coming at us every day, right? There are new immunomodulators, new PERS vaccines that are coming out. I shouldn't say every day, but every year for sure. And really, to me, the focus in the next couple of years is to figure out how do we stack those technologies, right? Mm-hmm. What are the pieces of technology that are synergistic with each other that they can be leveraged together and one plus one doesn't equal two. One plus one from an investment standpoint equals four because you double the return on each of those individual products that you're using. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. Thanks, Thank Clayton. You. So moving up to the PD page. So this page covers actually the PCR detection for enteric coronavirus, uh, for PED, Delta coronavirus, and and TGE. Giovanni, what are the the highlights for this month report regarding the enteric coronavirus detection? There was no detection of TGE since August. The levels of detection of PED and Delta coronavirus 
during November was similar to October. Even though these levels of detection are lower for this period of the year, the advisory group did point out that this lower detection should be taken as uh, highlights for the swine industry that should be kept vigilant on these agents. Compliance with cleaning and disinfection procedures at a farm and transportation level, routes of transport, people and animal movements, feed supply chain security, close monitoring finishing sites and having a contingency plan to avoid additional farm contaminations can contain the further spread of these agents and should be considered. Yeah, thanks, Giovanni. So, Clayton, uh, since the enteric coronavirus introduction, what are the, the, the most important lessons, on, on your opinion, that we learned to deal with this pathogen since the, its introduction in 2013? What will be, uh, in your opinion, the most up-to-date advices for controlling and managing this, this pathogen? So many learnings that came out of that, Edison. Um, you know, it's one of those events that kind of like 9-11, uh, if you're in the pig industry, uh, you know exactly where you were when you first heard of PED, right? I can think to the exact location I was, who I was with, and then the immediate fear of, oh, no, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for the health care of a large number of pigs throughout the United States, and I don't even know what this disease is, much less how to manage it and how to prevent, you know, my, my client from getting it. Um I think the, uh, you know, the, the, one of the big learnings that's come out of it is certainly the different routes of introduction in which a, a pathogen can come into your pig farm um, with certainly feed and feed ingredients being at the top of that list um, was something that really wasn't on our radar very much before the coronavirus introductions. Uh, but it's certainly on our radar right now. And as we think about African swine fever and some of the other pathogens that aren't in the country and we want to keep them out, there's certainly uh, some of the higher risk things that we look at in terms of what could result in the, you know, the index case of ASF here in the United States. And even if you, you know, you, you argue, well, we don't think that all the transmission works that way for the enteric coronaviruses. Well, sure, agreed. There are plenty of good ways to move PED and Delta coronavirus around that, that aren't feed related. Uh, but it just takes one ind index case to create a bunch of cases in the industry and overwhelm the industry. And I think that would be lesson number two. Um, and it's been reinforced throughout 2020 with the various challenges we've had, is that we, at the end of the day, are a relatively fragile supply chain. Um, there's not a lot of redundancy built into each step along the way because redundancy typically adds costs. And uh, the United States pig industry has done a great job of making the lowest cost pork in the world. But that has uh, come, as I say, at a, at a, at a loss of redundancy. And you look at some of the, the challenges that we have with being able to mitigate a large-scale disease outbreak like PED. We certainly showed that we can do it with time. But, you know, the timeline of 12 to 18 months that it took us to get the disease under control here in the United States is probably unacceptable as we look forward to a foreign animal disease outbreak. We don't have 12 to 18 months to wait to get ASF under control. If we don't get that under control in 12 to 18 days, we're in a, a situation where you see some of the, the Asian countries that have been hit relatively recently where they're looking at being ASF endemic. And that's obviously a, a situation that we can't live with. So I think understanding that our industry can be fragile, you know, while we think of it as a very vibrant and robust industry that gives lots of people jobs and is wonderful in many ways for our, our economy and country in general, um, we have to understand that there are risks to it and that one pathogen can cause a tremendous amount of damage in a short amount of time if we're not prepared for it. 
Yeah, no, really great comments. Thanks. So moving to the next page, which is uh, concerns the uh, mycoplasma detection, uh, PCR detection for mycoplasma. What are the highlights for this month report, Giovanni? Well, as expected, mycoplasma hyomony is the, having a decreased detection for this time of the year. So no other comments. Okay, so let's move to the final page, which is the page that covers uh, disease diagnosis detection by the Iowa State VDL. Uh, and this month, we observed uh, an increased number of diagnoses for some specific pathogens. What are the, the highlights regarding the, the disease diagnosis, Giovanni? From the disease diagnosis, we need to remind us that we are in the time of the year where we usually see some increase in the number of diagnoses, especially for respiratory agents. With that said, we see some signals for increased detection for influenza A, PERS, streptococcus, rotavirus, Pasteurella multocida in the past six weeks. Mm-hmm. Clayton, how have you been dealing with, with these pathogens and, and their interactions in the field? And what will be, in your opinion, the opt- optimal uh, disease management protocol for, for dealing with these pathogens uh, in high-density or challenge areas? Yep. Well, I think, uh, you know, some of it, uh, Giovanni mentioned, going back to his comments on mycoplasma, you know, we expect some of these disease incidence levels to spike this time of year. Um, so in some ways, uh, as a veterinarian, we just need to be able to make the prognosis and the prediction for our producers. You know, hey, these things are going to these things are going to happen. We need to be prepared for them. The, for some diseases like PERS and influenza, producers may be on a seasonal vaccination program where they're looking to boost their immunity, at least at the sow herd level in the fall, trying to prepare for the, the inevitable disease transmission. Um, you know, for some of the other diseases you mentioned, I do think they're kind of year-round challenges. Um, strep suis would be a great example. Some of that strep suis activity could be driven by an increase in PERS infections at sow farms. You know, strep is a common secondary pathogen to a PERS infection in a pig immediately post-weaning. So that could be driving some of it, but I would tell you strep is a, a real troubling pathogen for me, and it's one that we're not necessarily getting better at with time. Mm-hmm. It seems like we're kind of in a rut of trying to, to do a better job of managing those strep bugs. Um, there's a lot of effort that's being put into diagnostic evaluation and understanding how um, diagnostics can better help identify uh, highly likely you know, to be virulent uh, isolates, help to, to kind of... Um, follow the chain or the, oh, what should I say, the family tree, if you will, of the strep isolate and understand, you know, this specific strep isolate, your sow herd, where did it come from? And, you know, how does your, your multiplication source, your guilt source play into that source of strep? Um, you know, to, to me, the strep is going to continue to be one that we battle because I think it's probably increased right now just due to the PERS activity. But it's one for me I would highlight that over the last few years has increased in terms of its severity and overall negative impact on pork production. Well, very, very good. That brings us to our closing question, which uh, how, how do you envision, Clayton, the future of di- uh, disease diagnostic and surveillance? I certainly envision a, a situation where we are doing more active surveillance within our pig populations. As the cost of diagnostic testing goes down, I think you'll see producers make more investment in trying to categorize disease based on these active diagnostic samples. 
And PERS management is the best example of that, Daniel and guys. Um, you know, with PERS, until we had a classification system, it was really hard to have any sort of consistent management Good process point, yeah. to, to try and drive people towards a goal, to try and show them, here's how you can get out of stage one and into stage two. And uh, diagnostics are at the core of the decision to move the herd or the animal from stage one to stage two. And those diagnostics are routinely collected. They're not biased towards sick pigs. They're, they're, they're the population-based samples that you guys know and work with so much. Uh, processing fluids, oral fluids, uh, all those things that we're, that we're doing now to evaluate population disease dynamics. I think we need to take that and push that forward. Um, you know, there was a team that worked on a proposal for mycoplasma categorization. I think that's a very good idea and something the industry needs to run with. I think we need to look at circovirus in the same way. You know, can we categorize PCV2, PCV3, the next PCV that comes at us? I think each of these pathogens that are endemic pathogens within our pig flows, so ones in which we know because of vertical transmission from the south of the pig, all the pigs in the chain are going to be infected. You know, PCV certainly fits that category. Strep is another one that fits that category. We need better diagnostic decisions in terms of how to spend our money so that we do a better job of categorizing the, the disease status within that flow of pigs. And then we can put very specific interventions in place associated with each step in that categorization. Mm-hmm. That helps us to measure the response to those interventions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I've, we've talked about that a lot, this a lot with PERS in terms of our, our POP project and trying to, you know, understand what are you doing for PERS management and ultimately how does that influence your outcomes? If we've got enough people that are trying consistently um, intervention strategies, we can evaluate those and compare them to different intervention strategies over time. But at the core of that is a consistent set of diagnostics. So when I say I achieve stage two, it means the same thing as Giovanni saying he got to stage two and Edison saying he got to stage two. That's the apples to apples piece that the diagnostics can bring us if we use the diagnostics in a coordinated and consistent way. Systematic. That's right. Thank you. You left us with a a lot to think about. And thank you you for that. Lots of of good comments, perspectives, and we will... Uh, have that as a homework, right? To kind of think about it, and hope, hopefully, the audience is, is going to do the same. So, yeah. and it's exciting. There's a lot of stuff to to know, to learn about it. Yeah? A lot of data that it's coming, and we have a lot of stuff to, that we have to learn. So, fi- uh, getting to the final, to the conclusion, would like to to thank you, Dr. Clayton Johnson, for for joining us today. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you here to share the knowledge that you, you have with us. And like I said before, thanks for the, the ideas and the, the podcast is one of that, one of your ideas. And all for, the, for all the support that you have been providing as an advisory member at the, 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 the Swine Disease Reporting System. And with that, we would like to, to thank you again and you, I see you guys next month. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Turn it on soft and low